Growing up speaking English in the United States, I could never really understand the purpose or the utility of Pig Latin. It's not something that everyone's great at rambling in, but you can almost always understand what's being said, regardless of whether or not you're a master Pig Latin linguist, so long as you've heard it before and understand the fundamentals of what's happening. The appeal of this non-language, of this language game, became more apparent when I started traveling, and when I started to spend a lot more time with people who don't speak English natively, the amount of time that it takes for Pig Latin to come up naturally in conversation, at least. For those who aren't familiar, Pig Latin is kind of a made-up language that involves the reworking of individual words according to a consistent method or framework. If the word starts with a consonant, you move the first syllable typically, to the back and add the A sound after it. If the word starts with a vowel, you simply add way to the end, the sound way. So the sentence, I don't speak Pig Latin very well, would translate in Pig Latin to I way, ont de, ixpe, igpe, atenle, erive, elway. Fairly simple when you understand what's going on, but something that you could understand would be a little bit confusing if you have no idea what Pig Latin is or no concept of what such a language game entails. Early mentions of Pig Latin describe what we now refer to as Dog Latin, which is more about creating fake Latin words that sound legit, a bit like lorem ipsum, which is false text that software and typesetters often provide to show how text will look in a particular typeface, in a particular format, occupying a particular space. Lorem Ipsum, by the way, was originally made up of scrambled bits of a work by Cicero that was published in the first century BC. This work was entitled De Finibus Bonorum et Malorum, and was used by a type foundry to display their wares in the 1960s, but popularized in its modern incarnation through its inclusion in the publishing software PageMaker in the 1980s. But I digress. Pig Latin, not to be confused with Dog Latin, is referenced as far back as Shakespeare, and then continued to be popularized by the Three Stooges, who even explained the rules of the language game, as I did just a second ago, in the first half of the 20th century. And it continues to exist today, allowing English speakers everywhere to confuse the hell out of their friends for whom English is a second language. English isn't the only language with this sort of language game, however. German has a few. Swedish has at least one that translates into English as fig language. The French have one that was originally used as a trade language for butchers. And in many countries throughout the Balkans, there's a language that started its life as a drug and crime-related street language, but which today is used commonly by many non-criminal teenage immigrants in the area, in the same way that shorthand has evolved for teenagers in the United States, for instance, and typically takes the shape of acronyms and internet memes. If you distort the language that we use, you distort our ability to decode the meaning in the words of that language. Intentional distortion through word games isn't the only way that we can blur this meaning, however. And that's what I want to talk about today. The words we use and how problematic it can be when we overuse, underuse, or misuse them. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by HostGator. Check out all of their hosting offerings at hostgator.com LKT and receive a substantial discount on whatever you might require. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. Try out Audible. 
using audibletrial.com slash LKT. You will receive a free month of Audible service, and you will also receive a free audiobook of your choice from the hundreds of thousands of options within their audiobook library. Stay tuned till the end of this episode, and I will also offer a book recommendation. Something to consider in how you spend that free audiobook credit. Thanks, as always, for your support. Now let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool in this episode comes from McLean's, and the title of the article is The Problem with Problematic. And this article does a much better job than a lot of discussions on this topic of actually getting into some of the minuscule issues with language and the way that we use it and how it's being applied and kind of covering a couple different sides of the issue. And since this article does such a good job of describing the issue of the word problematic specifically, I want to pull a quote directly from that to get us started. So in talking about the word problematic, this article says, quote, it's currently used as an adjective to describe something that in some way, through its meaning or the unstated assumptions behind it, reinforces unjust beliefs or an unfair system. In other words, Problematic is an umbrella term, meaning anything that is part of the problem, not part of the solution. It doesn't always mean racist or sexist, though it certainly can, but mostly it means something that helps perpetuate racism or sexism. End quote. Now, using that definition, which is kind of a contextual definition if you think about it, because it's not just the literal dictionary definition of a word, it describes how the word is actually being used in practice today in think pieces and in debates and such. The word is actually very often derided because, at least in part, of how overused it can seem and how, to some, it seems a very easy excuse to not actually have a real conversation about the topics that it describes. Rather than saying that's racist or that's sexist, which is something that then can be easily discussed and argued and either proven or disproven, saying that's problematic often leads to the necessity for a much larger, longer discussion because it opens a much larger can of worms. It's no longer saying, here's this very specific thing that you said that I am calling problematic. It's saying that thing that you just said is part of a much larger argument that we need to be having about society and how racism and sexism are propagated within this society, and there is systematic oppression that's happening. And so let's have that discussion. So rather than it simply being an issue of a given person saying something racist, potentially, the discussion becomes about that wider, bigger thing, that context of racism and society and systematic oppression and then how we talk about those things. So in essence, it's discussing the context in which you're having the discussion rather than adding something to the discussion itself. That's the way it can often come across to people who say things that are labeled as problematic. And right now, in this particular moment in history, using this word to label a discussion as opposed to having that discussion can seem especially condescending to some and almost elitist, because it implies that there are foundational problems and that the other person, the one who's being labeled problematic, or who is being told that they are saying something problematic, they're being told that they are part of those problems. And this moment in time, by the way, is at least partially defined by a reshuffling of political parties, taking it from a system of conservative versus progressive to something that is probably more accurately described as something like insider versus outsider. One of the major outsider candidates, and there are a few in this election, has been all about speaking up loudly and saying things very clearly, even when those things are incredibly rude or racist or demonstrably factually inaccurate. And this directness is seen as a strength by some. And as such, 
anything less direct can often come across as a weakness or an inability to fight fair or to face issues head on. It can seem like intentional obfuscation. So instead of having this discussion here and now, you are trying to have a larger discussion that I am not prepared to have. And as such, you probably don't have anything relevant to say to this particular argument. That's the way that it can seem to some when people use words like problematic. I personally tend to think that there's merit to the idea that any conflict worth discussing or arguing has a massive context surrounding it. And anything that we can do to recognize that context and to bring it into the discussion and allow it to inform those discussions that we're having is a good thing. That said, I have also heard the term problematic used in many ridiculous situations by people who seem to have decided that it's a word that grants them implicit moral high ground and implicit support for whatever argument they're choosing to make at that moment. And as a result, they lower the quality of discourse and reduce our ability to have these discussions because they've decided that this word gives them that position. And so I, I won't personally be too terribly upset to see this word in particular wane into obscurity. But that, that's what I'm talking about here, is that we have a word that can be, and that often is, powerful, and yet it is slowly but surely, and perhaps in this case quite rapidly, losing that power because of how it's used and what associations it comes to have through that usage. Words over time, not just this word, but all words, over time become associated with things and become both more and less useful as a result of those associations. They become more impactful in some cases because they slowly but surely say more. They have additional context, they have additional meaning because they've been used in certain ways in the past and as such then become associated with these, these other meanings, this greater depth of definition. They become more loaded with implication. But they also become less useful because then you cannot use them in most cases for just the base definition without having those additional implications brought to bear. And so you cannot use them without implying a great number of things that you don't necessarily want to imply. You suddenly cannot use that word without also using all of those additional implications alongside the literal meaning. And so words, they, they kind of accrue this plaque, this baggage over time. These verbal barnacles that cling and turn into an unbreakable shell. And this over time serves as kind of an anchor, serves as a weight on that word, which slowly but surely drags it into obscurity. I've had several conversations with friends recently wherein we realized we couldn't use certain words because they had become loaded with these verbal barnacles. We couldn't use words like problematic because it had become associated with so much other meaning. And so if you use the word, you had to define it in situ. Otherwise, the other person would think that you were trying to obfuscate in some way. We found the same to be true with words like social justice, increasingly, or as it's used online in a lot of cases, to describe somebody who believes in social justice, social justice warrior, or SJW. To some of the people that I've spoken to, social justice warrior is a term that is a criticism of a group of people who are over-enthusiastic about shutting down any idea that they consider to be not politically correct. To me, very often, this is a positive label. A social justice warrior is somebody who cares about social justice, these ideas that are largely positive, I would say. And people who use the word as a defamatory label, who, who say SJW and use it in an accusatory tone, tend to be folks who harass and abuse women in particular online. And so these discussions that I've had with people that started out about very different things have of late turned to the baggage that has been attached to these different words that a lot of people are using 
not necessarily realizing that the way that they're using it is not the way the people on the other side of that conversation are understanding it. What's amazing to me is how quickly words like this go from meaningful or meaningful to a particular group in a particular way before they kind of become neutralized or at least effectively neutralized due to overuse. And as a result, we kind of become inoculated to their effect or impact or eventually don't even notice them because they become a bit of a joke. And that's part of what's troubling and there's another increasingly overused and misinterpreted word for you, troubling. That's part of what's troubling about this to me, is that we use words like troubling and problematic because they allow us to discuss things that we consider to be harmful, but to do it in a soft way, a somewhat a relatively less offensive way. Because we recognize that the harm that we are talking about isn't necessarily considered harm by everybody. When we talk about comments that some people would consider to be racist comments, well, to somebody, these are not considered to be racist comments. They're just considered to be comments that are either true or a valid opinion that they are allowed to take. And so we adopt words like problematic because it allows us to have a discussion about these things. Ideally, without flat out labeling somebody as a racist, it allows us to say that was a problematic statement rather than saying, dude, you're totally being a racist right now. And that ideally should allow us to have a conversation without immediately calling somebody out as being the bad guy. Unfortunately, though, because we tend to use and overuse these types of words, and because they do attain all of that plaque over time and aggregate a bunch of meaningful baggage, the increased associations that we have with these words is that somebody who uses the word problematic is going out of their way to call us something horrible. They are saying that we are part of a systematic problem. And so as a result, instead of it softening the blow so that we can have an intellectual discussion about something, it increases it by saying, not only are you saying something that I find to be morally deplorable, you are also part of this bigger systematic problem. And so above and beyond this discussion that we're having, where I think that I am the morally superior person, you are morally inferior on a much wider scale than you might have realized before. Now, these types of discussions are really difficult to have. And I, I did a past episode on privilege, actually, that you can go back and listen to for more of a discussion on that topic in particular. Because that, that is an issue that informs a whole lot of what's happening right now with these types of discussions in particular. But the bare bones of it is that we're very often talking around each other because we find it very difficult to understand how other people can see the world differently from us. When words are outright banned or socially frowned upon, to some it feels like a restriction, while to others it feels like liberation. It feels like freedom. Freedom from being offended by others who would speak with the intention of causing offense, or from those who simply don't realize that they're causing that offense by speaking in this way. Being able to publicly, without punishment, use racially charged words, for instance, to some people is a freedom of speech issue. To others, these words are loaded with generations of oppression and violence and prejudice. The words might be softened to some degree by appropriation, which I'll talk about in a second, but that doesn't change the fact that their usage to many people remains an indication of disrespect by one group, a group of people who very typically fail to even recognize the privileges that they enjoy, toward another group that does not have those same privileges. That second group, the one who doesn't have the majority of the privileges, is only just now beginning to have some of those privileges. Just it's the very early days of offering these same privileges or as many of them as possible to as many people as possible. And so now that they are able to speak in a way that they haven't been able to speak before, they are saying to that first group who has always had the privileges, hey guys, this is offensive to us. That's pretty horrible that you're saying that. And the first group, the, the freedom of speech group, 
they are beginning to feel victimized because it feels to them like this is a right that is being taken away from them, the right to say whatever the hell, whenever the hell. It's a very complicated issue, and it's a very complicated situation, and it's one that we've experienced societally in smaller ways in the past, in in more limited ways. But what's happening right now is it's really the confluence of a bunch of different rights being granted to a bunch of different groups that have never had those rights before. And so we're seeing groups of traditionally oppressed people able to speak up for the first time ever, and the discussions that are happening as a result, I think will be largely positive. But right now, it's a very tumultuous time in any arena in which we're having those discussions. And part of the reason that these are such difficult conversations to have is that there are good arguments on both sides. And unless we all agree to see the world from the exact same perspective and to have the same views about how society should evolve, we're unlikely to get on exactly the same page anytime soon. And so these discussions are important because it will hopefully help us sort out how to exist with each other, with other people who have very different viewpoints and very different experiences and cultural backgrounds and everything else, while causing as little harm to each other as possible, and while taking away as few freedoms from each other as possible. Now, in the midst of all this scuffling, this verbal scuffling, one way that groups have traditionally been the target of some of these words are reducing the impact of the language that's being used that could be very offensive to them. One of the ways that they are watering that down and diluting it is by appropriating, or in some cases, reappropriating the words that are being used in an effort to make them their own and to take away the weaponized stinging power that they might otherwise have. One example of this is the slut walk. It's, it's really a series of protest marches, of parades almost, that take place around the world. And the first one took place in 2011 in Canada after a police chief, I think it was, basically told women that if they didn't want to be sexually assaulted, they should stop dressing like sluts. And this is clearly an incredibly offensive thing to say, and it is victim-blaming like crazy. Women should not be told not to dress a certain way, or they'll be assaulted. We should be teaching people not to assault women, no matter how they're dressed. And that was kind of the ideology behind these walks, was to say, you're calling us sluts. You are basically saying that if we dress a certain way that doesn't meet your approval, we deserve to be raped. And by appropriating this term, which can be a very, very offensive term, when spoken from the lips of somebody who believes women deserve to be assaulted if they dress a certain way, But by using it like this, by owning that word, they're able to say, listen, you say slut like it's a bad thing. We are women who are in control of our sex lives. We can dress however the hell we want, and we are going to embrace that. We're going to take that word that you use as a weapon and say, yeah, booyah, we are sexually liberated. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Now, does this completely alleviate the damage that can be done by somebody using this word offensively? Well, no, but it does allow the typical targets of this word to feel a sort of ownership around it. So when somebody uses this word to describe them negatively, they can remember that these things that this person using this word offensively considers to be bad things, I consider to be good things. I am a sexually liberated person. I believe I can dress and act and date however I want. I can have sex with somebody and it's not something that is a stain on my record and that's okay. And in doing so, this has created a movement for increased sexual awareness and awareness about rape culture and again, those bigger contextual issues that go into this discussion. But it's an excellent example of appropriated words that were used by a group trying to bring another group down. And then they take it and make it their flag, essentially. Now, I should probably say now that there's going to be some words in this episode that are offensive. I I would argue slut is is a word that could definitely be offensive. And I, I certainly don't hope to offend anybody with it. I'm 
having a discussion of language. And so I think it's important to use certain language so that people are aware of what we're talking about. There are other words that I'm not going to use, partially because I don't think it's necessary. I think people know what I'm talking about, and I'd like to keep this as family-friendly as possible. And then there's other words, too, that I just simply don't feel comfortable using. Uh, The N-word, to describe African Americans, for example, is just something that culturally, societally, I do not feel comfortable using. Just based on my upbringing, it's not a word that I feel comfortable using because it is something that I recognize is incredibly offensive to certain groups of people. And this is another word too, by the way, the the N-word, that has been appropriated by the black community in the United States as something that, that now it's their word. They get to use it however they want. And when they use it within their own community, it's not something that's offensive. It's something that's almost a term of endearment. Whereas if, if somebody from outside of that community comes in and uses it incorrectly, it can still be a very offensive thing because of the history of it and the way that it's been used historically. And so it says something that somebody like me who's discussing this type of language and how offensive certain words can be, I still feel very uncomfortable using it. That speaks to the power of being able to appropriate these types of words to take away the the nettle sting of it, that they do become the property of the people who were formerly oppressed by them. And I think that that's largely a positive movement. I think that being able to take these words that people would use to lash us and to make them into a rallying cry, or at least into something that we can use casually without having to feel the sting of them anymore. That is a remarkable and positive use of language to try to come to terms with historical difficulties, but then also to move forward in such a way that the history of these things, of this vernacular, doesn't continue to oppress us in the future. It's something that we can use as wings instead of anchors. Now, does this mean that someone like me, a a white guy from the U.S., cannot use the N-word if they want to? No, no, I don't think so. But do I make the choice not to use it because I know there are people who it would offend or potentially even hurt? Yes. And that's an important part of this discussion as well. I absolutely believe in the freedom of speech and protecting it because it's an integral part to a democracy and it's an integral part to the continued evolution and development of a healthy society to have a lot of different ideas and to be able to speak about these ideas. So I can absolutely understand the concerns of people who are worried that their rights are being whittled away or atrophied by the so-called PC police, the politically correct police. Now, that said, I also think that it is asinine to speak in a way that you know will offend people, just because you can. That some people look at their freedom of speech and decide that this is the freedom to offend, it is legally, in a legal sense, you do have the right to offend whoever you like, But the idea that the first thing that you decide to do when you realize that you have this right is to go out to offend an individual or a group of people, perhaps repeatedly, perhaps for your entire life, that is insane to me. That is an absolute misuse of what could be an incredibly valuable tool. And just as the word problematic becomes burdened with the additional meaning that's attached to it, the reason that a lot of people have stopped listening to the people who are shouting out about their freedom of speech rights anytime somebody raises the issue of racism or sexism or whatnot. The reason that we don't pay attention to them is that in a lot of cases, the same people who are shouting out about their freedom of speech rights being reduced are people who are actually assholes. They are people who are going out of their way to offend other people intentionally and repeatedly and consistently. And so it's very, very difficult to take them as legitimate messengers of this truly legitimate concern. There is a concern that freedom of speech might be overwritten or reduced in some way, and that is legitimate. But the messengers in this case are highly suspect. Wanting to fight for your freedom of speech does not mean that you are a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or something like that. 
But there are a remarkable number of racists, sexists, and homophobes that are shouting about their freedom of speech rights being degraded right now. And so it's another one of those unfortunate situations where talking about how everybody is too politically correct, while by the textbook definition of that might be true, they have created a great deal of baggage for that particular phrase and that particular subject matter right now in the public discourse. Now, on the topic of offensive terms, interestingly, we may not have as many offensive words to use in a very short while. Curse words or swear words, whatever you want to call them, we are slowly but surely running out of them. And it's, it's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of creativity in this particular aspect of the, the evolution of the English language. But it's more that we're using them so much and we're using the same ones over and over and over again that eventually they kind of lose their impact. Now, the word profanity is a word that stems from the word profane, and that is the, the opposite of sacred. It's a disrespect towards something holy. And profanity, words that become profanity, that we come to label as profanity, typically comes to be that way because we use these words to imply the debasement of someone or something in the way that we traditionally would have implied the debasement of something holy. And it's estimated that somewhere between 0.5 and 0.7% of all words that a person uses every day are swear words. Now compare that with around 1% of the words that we use being first-person plural pronouns like we, us, and our. So 1% of what we use each day is we, us, and our. 0. 0.5 to 0.7% are swear words. That's, that's an interesting proportion if you think about it based on the types of conversations that we tend to have and, and how likely we are to use the words we, us, and our. That is the average, though, and the usage of profanity, of swear words, actually varies quite wildly, with the lower extreme being 0%, with some people not using any words that they consider to be profane, while for other people, swearing makes up 3.4% of all the words that they utter in a given day which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. I couldn't find any research on this particular subject, but I will be interested to see which direction this goes. I would guess that for some people that number is vastly higher if we take into account the words that they write, particularly on social media. If I can find a study on that subject matter, I will add it to the show notes later. But as far as I'm aware, that type of study has not been done yet. Now, what studies have shown is that swearing seems to serve the purpose of anger management and that it's even been shown to alleviate the impact of pain in several different studies. If you curse when experiencing pain, you feel the pain less potently. Now, that said, overuse of swearing, swearing too often, renders the words less potent in this regard. So if you swear a lot, the use of swear words to alleviate pain or to manage your anger diminishes. So it's almost like taking antibiotics. If you use them too much, eventually you're not able to use them anymore. The things that you're trying to kill with the antibiotics grow an immunity to them. And the same is true with your body's response to a profane word. At first, when you start using it, it can be very satisfying in some way. Your body responds physiologically to the use of this profanity. But over time, if you use it enough, the word no longer has the same meaning to you. And as such, you physiologically don't respond in the same way to using it. It's not the same anger management technique. It's not the same steam valve on your internal pressure system. And the same is true within society. The more a certain profane word is used and the more steeped in these types of swear words that we become as a society, the less impactful they are. It makes total sense that if you see the same profane words over and over and over again, day in and day out, and you hear them uttered by people day in and day out, and if you use them day in and day out, then over time they cease to have the same meaning. They're not surprising. They're not shocking. They don't even come across as profane anymore. They just start to be words that you use reflexively and that you hear used reflexively. Anecdotally, I would also argue that the overuse of swearing 
renders their use in speech ineffective, which is to say that if someone is cursing up a storm all the time, and half of the words they use is the F-bomb, you kind of cease to pay attention to it after a time. You just know that they are somebody who curses a lot, and they are not offended, they are not in pain, they are not angry necessarily when they're cursing. It's just part of their vocabulary that they tend to use a whole lot. Whereas, if there's somebody who you know who never curses, never uses profanity, and something happens and they say, oh shit, you know that something went down, something serious has happened, because they don't use those words very often. They reserve them for very specific times. That is how profane words retain their profanity, their profane nature. And that is how words in general maintain their usage when they are used only in very specific circumstances. And that is not the case for words in general anymore, but particularly swear words. And in support of this, you can see that swearing is very cultural. There are certain words that in American English mean very different things than in British English and are used in very different ways as well. I would argue that the C word, which I'm not going to say for the same reason I wasn't going to say the N word, it's very, very offensive in a lot of cases in American English. It's probably the most offensive word that you can use, particularly applied to women right now in American English. In British English, that's not the case. It's kind of the same as saying jerk or asshole there. It's, it's like so commonly used that it has lost its meaning. And so dropping a C-bomb in the UK does not have the same meaning as dropping one in the United States. Again, it's the difference in usage, it's the difference in cultural acceptability, and it loses its profanity over time. It is watered down by that overuse. Part of what makes swearing impactful is that it is taboo or references a taboo subject matter. And taboo means things that are, that are not okay to discuss, things that are very uncomfortable for people. And there are actually humanity-wide taboos that are generally unacceptable. Incest is a cultural taboo that across almost every society that has ever existed, incest is like a thing that is not okay. And as a result, a lot of insults, a lot of profanity have something to do with incest. Either implying that somebody is the type of person who would commit incest, or someone who has, or somebody in their family has, or even just referencing it in some cases, that is enough to make such a declaration a profane statement. This isn't always the case, though. Uh, cannibalism is another thing that's considered to be fairly widely taboo across all of human culture. But calling somebody a person eater would probably be more funny than offensive. So some taboo subjects we have turned into profanity, while others are just things that we don't talk about because they're a little bit weird. Things like cannibalism fall into the latter category, whereas the, the offensive category tends to be, uh, particularly in Western culture, things that relate to like sex, for example. Those are things that because of our, arguably, because of our very Christian background in the Western world, these are the things that have remained unspoken about for a great portion of our cultural history and societal development. Now, one other note on cursing is that it does seem to influence our perception of a person. Studies have shown that people who curse a whole lot, who use a lot of profanity, are perceived to be less competent. But on the other hand, people who use a lot of profanity are also perceived to be more believable and trustworthy. They seem to be expressing genuine feelings rather than holding back in a civil manner. And so if you look at politics or you look at pop culture in general, people who have less of a filter then are often perceived to be more trustworthy, even when they are provably lying a lot of the time. They're still considered to be more trustworthy and more down to earth because that's the perception that we have of people who seem to have less of a filter, who are willing to talk about taboo subjects, whereas people who use less profanity seem to be a little bit more defended, seem to be a little bit more like they're, they're putting up a, a guise that they want us to trust, when in reality anything could be happening behind that veil. 
Now, it's the very taboo-ness of these sorts of words and phrases and ideas that makes them so difficult to discuss. Even so-called minced oaths, which refer to euphemistic profanities like saying darn instead of damn and fudge instead of other F-words, have been considered profanity in court, and fines are consistently leveled against people who curse on air, be it on TV or the radio. This is less and less a consideration as we have a much wider array of networks to choose from, a lot of them more independent, but consistently throughout uh, history in a lot of different countries, but in the United States in particular, despite being a country with very liberal freedom of speech laws, we find people all the time for using profanity on TV or on other broadcast mediums. And the result of this is that we tend to communicate with symbols, at least partially, because they allow us to express these types of concepts and discuss these types of concepts without using these taboo words. And now the interesting consequence of that is a lot of the new means of communication that are becoming derogatory and offensive, the, the newly invented profanity, if you will, they aren't words at all, or they're remixed words that are used in a very different way than initially intended. There are a vast array, entire libraries of dirty uses of emoji, for instance. And this allows us to express a wide array of ideas and feelings and dispositions without using a single word. Now, more recently, a lot of these have evolved as the result of texting culture and social media culture because we are using these shorthand communication methods to communicate with each other more often. We're more likely to be using thumb-based keyboards on our smartphone. And so it's a lot easier to use an eggplant emoji than something else that we might use to represent a similar idea. Before the advent of smartphones, though, and, and continuing today, but particularly before social media became a big deal, video game culture had a huge impact on the development of an assortment of new and creative ways to offend other people, sometimes without saying a word and sometimes by using highly truncated acronyms. I remember I, I was never very good at playing Halo or other shooters of that nature, but I remember my roommates in college would play Halo online against other teams, and the biggest insult that you could level against another Halo player after you've killed them is to go up and cause your character to squat up and down on their character's corpse, because it looked like then you were doing something dirty to their corpse after killing them. This is something that if you didn't know that this was supposed to be an insult, then you'd just be like, oh, why'd that guy do that? That's weird. But knowing the culture and being part of that culture, this simple act that is completely nonverbal becomes a massive slap in the face. It is steeped in so much additional meaning that it would cause people to just go crazy as a result of this type of insult. And then they would go way out of their way to try to kill that guy the next time that they respond, that they were brought back into the game. There's a newer game that came out quite recently called Overwatch. They were having a whole lot of trouble with players causing this type of outrage in other players. Somebody who would kill somebody else within the game would say, G-G-E-Z. And G-G is very, very old video game acronym for good game. It's a good way to be a good sport within these games. You know, you, you just beat somebody else or you were defeated by somebody else. And either way, you would say good game. It was the equivalent of after like a baseball game going and giving high fives or shaking hands with the other team. It's a symbol of good sportsmanship. GGEZ, on the other hand, became a warped version of this where you would win and then essentially say, haha, that was so easy, why did I even bother? The maker of the game wanted to try to nip this in the bud because they were trying to create a positive atmosphere in which people could play. And so Blizzard, that's the company behind the game, created a patch for the game that would automatically take that particular string of characters, G-G-E-Z, and convert it into something else. And so if you are the type of non-sportsman-like player who would play a game, type out G-G-E-Z, that text would then be converted to, say, one of several different options. It, it might say, 
Well played, I salute you all, or for glory and honor, huzzah, comrades, or I'm wrestling with some insecurity issues in my life, but thank you all for playing with me, or it's past my bedtime, please don't tell my mommy, or I feel very, very small, please hold me. It is something that a lot of people are considering to be a feature rather than a bug or a hack because it really does increase the quality of discourse and it only affects people who are basically toxic to the positive environment that they're trying to create with this game. And so it is being received as kind of a hilarious means of achieving that end of trying to get people to be a little bit more upbeat and funny and happy rather than being such jerks when they win or lose. And so the watering down of profanity, the loss of effectiveness over time as it's used and overused and saddled with additional baggage over time, it's not just the case with profanity and other offensive terms. It's also the case with buzzwords. Like think of of corporate buzzwords that you've heard over the years, like synergy, authentic, influencer. These are things that particularly if you are in some kind of business field or marketing field, if you're involved in entrepreneurship, you go to LinkedIn or Medium and like every post is about these things. You cannot throw a stone without hitting one of these buzzwords that at first might have meant something. The word authenticity, if you go back five or ten years, was, was kind of a novel term. The idea of being authentic within business was kind of a novelty, being yourself and expressing that clearly. That was a good piece of advice to tell somebody to be authentic. But now it is used so liberally that it's become interchangeable for almost any other buzzword. It's like, be authentic, authentic this, it's an authentic business, a list of 10 things to be authentic, so that it has essentially become meaningless. It's just one more word that you ignore because everybody is spouting it without actually doing it. It's become interchangeable with any of the other words that people are repeatedly telling you that you're supposed to be if you're going to be successful in business. We are watering down words faster than ever before because of how we have conversations today, because of how we share words and how we are exposed to more of them all of the time. We're exposed to more new ideas, but also more of the same ideas day in and day out more repeated exposure to the same concepts in the same language. And this is the result of the algorithms that shape what we see. And because of the thought leaders, there's another watered-down buzzword for you, by the way, that we tend to follow, and from where we tend to get our information and opinions. There are a lot of aspects to society and how it's shaped that actually cause words to lose their meaning and edge over time. I would argue that being legally obligated to call a judge your honor waters down the concept of honor and the use of that word. You don't become honorable in the literal sense by becoming a judge. You could be a true asshole and still be a judge. But in the legal sense, you get the robe and you get the title. This dilutes the word and the concept to which it is attached. This is the case for many words that are applied to liberally. Initially, in an effort to show respect or to indicate prestige of some kind, but Eventually, they become just honoraries. They are trophies that are given to everybody who participates. Think about it this way. How many times have you used the word sincerely in its most literal sense? And how many times have you used it simply as a way to end a letter? Probably a lot more of the latter, right? And how about this one? How many times have you used the word love to indicate that you really very much enjoy a muffin, a movie? And how many times have you struggled to figure out when to use it in a relationship? Where the bar might be? I would argue that the bar keeps moving on that one, at least in part because we've largely demolished the word in its original sense through our common usage of it and increasingly common usage of it to describe enjoyment outside of a relationship context. What's problematic to me about all of this, and I mean that word in the context-encompassing sense of the word, is that as we use these words, many of us are also using fewer words. There are around 170,000 words currently in use in the English language. There are over a million that are registered by dictionaries, but only 170,000 of those are considered to be still actively used and relevant in modern English speech. 
Now think about that, and then consider that 95% of our interactions only use about 3,000 of those words. 170,000 total words. And most of the time, 95% of our lives, we will only use about 3,000 of them. It's estimated that most adults have somewhere around 10,000 lemmas in their vocabulary. And a lemma is a word like walk, which then implies the inclusion of walks and walked in other conjugated words as part of it. So a lemma could contain three to seven, maybe, individual words as part of it. And most adults have a vocabulary that contains about 10,000 lemmas. So maybe 35 to 50,000 actual words, not counting things like proper nouns. Some studies have shown that our functional vocabularies are overall becoming smaller as visual technologies have begun to dominate communication. So not practicing and not being exposed to words in multiple contexts seems to be less useful and less likely to lodge those words in our brain than reading, writing, and speaking them over time. Instead, these days, most of the words that we're exposed to we're only exposed to visually on a page or on a phone or on a computer screen. And that, for whatever reason, makes us a lot less likely to take them in and start using them ourselves. That said, there is one group that consistently has larger-than-average vocabularies, and those are people who read regularly. They show consistently higher marks on this type of research when they do these types of studies, and the more you read, the larger your vocabulary. So if you read one book per month for the entire year, you will have typically a much larger vocabulary than somebody who reads just a few books a year, If you read three books per month, you will have a larger vocabulary than the person who only reads one book per month. And readers of fiction, in particular, have consistently even higher vocabularies than people who only read nonfiction. And this is thought to be the case because they are exposed to a much larger collection of words in a much larger variety of contexts and are more likely to have storylines to which they can connect those words and our brains tend to latch on to information and remember it better if we put it in the context of a story. So something to think about in both how we use and how we acquire new words. Context matters. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator has been my hosting company of choice for many years now. I am very satisfied with their service and their number of options. If you are looking to start a blog or to start a portfolio for your creative work or to build a website for your business, I highly recommend checking them out. They are very, very competitive when it comes to price and when it comes to service offerings. Their customer service is legendary. And if you visit hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on top of their already excellent prices. So hostgator.com slash LKT, a great way to get started on that project and to help support the podcast. This episode is also sponsored by Audible. I have become a big fan of audiobooks of late and am very pleased to offer the opportunity for you to get a free month of Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you'll get a free month's membership to Audible, and you will also get a free audiobook of your choice. And that is awesome because audiobooks typically cost somewhere in the teens to the 20s of dollars, and this will get you one of any of their books contained in their massive library of audiobooks for free. And when I have them as a sponsor, I like to give a book recommendation. So if a particular book doesn't immediately come to mind on how to spend that free audiobook credit, this is an excellent option for you to consider. And the book that I want to recommend today is called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. And this is a book that was written in 1996, and it actually won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction. But it's 
not really considered to be science fiction by most of the people who read it, including the author herself. She, she's actually agreed with some of the sentiments that it doesn't really seem like a science fiction novel. And one reviewer for the Library Journal, Nancy Pearl, even said that the book was mistakenly categorized as science fiction and that it is really, quote, a philosophical novel about the nature of good and evil and what happens when a man tries to do the right thing for the right reasons and ends up causing incalculable harm. I started reading this book and I could not put it down. It's, it's a really, really wonderful story with great characters. It's utterly fascinating. I don't want to get too much into the plot because the plot itself is something of a surprise and, and very, very interesting. But I, I do want to read you the prologue because it gives an indication of what this book is about, but also gives an indication of the writing style. And so this is the prologue of The Sparrow. It was predictable in hindsight. Everything about the history of the Society of Jesus bespoke deft and efficient action, exploration, and research. During what Europeans were pleased to call the Age of Discovery, Jesuit priests were never more than a year or two behind the men who made initial contact with previously unknown peoples. Indeed, Jesuits were often the vanguard of exploration. The United Nations required years to come to a decision that the Society of Jesus reached in ten days. In New York, diplomats debated long and hard, with many recesses and tablings of the issue, whether and why human resources should be expended in an attempt to contact the world that would become known as Rakat, when there were so many pressing needs on earth. In Rome, the questions were not whether or why, but how soon the mission could be attempted and whom to send. The society asked leave of no temporal government. It acted on its own principles, with its own assets, on papal authority. The mission to racket was undertaken not so much secretly as privately. A fine distinction, but one that the society felt no compulsion to explain or justify when the news broke several years later. The Jesuit scientists went to learn, not to proselytize. They went so they might come to know and love God's other children. They went for the reason Jesuits have always gone to the farthest frontiers of human exploration. They went ad mahorum de gloriam, for the greater glory of God. They meant no harm. So again, that is the prologue for The Sparrow, a wonderful book by Mary Doria Russell, and a book that is worth reading regardless, but there is also an excellent audiobook edition available on Audible. So if you want to do that Audible trial, you get a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. Go to audibletrial.com LKT, and you can snag yourself a copy of The Sparrow for free. So checking out those sponsors is a great way to help support the podcast. You can also support it directly if you care to. You can go to letsknowthings.com, and if you scroll down a little bit, there are several links there that you can use to contribute a dollar an episode or more if you like to, but you can do a dollar an episode and that would be amazing. You can set up recurring monthly contributions really easily there as well, so that is a great option if you would like to consistently contribute a dollar an episode. Another great way to contribute is by sharing this episode or your favorite episode with a friend or with social media by going to iTunes and leaving some stars and a review. These are all means of bringing in new people to the show, and that helps a whole lot as well. You can find Let's Know Things on Instagram and on Facebook at Let's Know Things. You can find me personally all across social media, everywhere from Snapchat to Instagram to Twitter at Colin is my name. You can find out more about my work, including the complete list of books that I have written at Colin.io. My blog is at ExileLifestyle.com. My YouTube show is at ConsiderThis.io. And if you want to find the show notes for this episode and every episode and or sign up for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which comes out every Monday, you can find those at letsknowthings.com. Thank you very, very much for all of your support and your continued enthusiasm. The messages that I've been getting on social media and via email have just been amazing, guys. Thank you so much for that. 
Thank you also to those who have contributed in some way, shape, or form already. I really appreciate it, and it allows me the opportunity to spend more time on this project, which I also appreciate because I am, frankly, having a blast producing this each week. You've been listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.